Welcome. For a status, I am Malihe Razazan. On April 16th, a new draft constitution that significantly increases the powers of Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan was approved by voters in a referendum. On the surface, the proposed changes may be seen as a benign attempt to modernize Turkey's constitution, which was drawn up by the Turkish military after the coup of 1980. But in reality, the plan turns Turkey from a parliamentary to a presidential republic, significantly increasing the powers of Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. So what are the most important changes to the Turkish constitution that the April 16 vote will bring about? And what do the results tell us about the AKP ruling party's base of support and who is the opposition in Turkey? Shahram Agamir put these questions to Sinan Birdal, visiting assistant professor in international relations and Middle East studies at the University of Southern California. First of all, it increases the control of the president over the legislative and over the judiciary. And it changes the parliamentary regime into a presidential regime. So what are these changes? What are we talking about? First of all, under the current regime, the parliamentary regime, the cabinet emerges out of the parliament. The leader of the majority group in the parliament gets a mandate from the president to establish a government, and then it gets a vote of confidence from the parliament. And the government as a whole and all of the ministers personally are responsible to the parliament. So what does that mean? In case they lose the confidence of the parliament, the cabinet might be brought down without necessarily the parliament getting dissolved. This system now changes. There will be no cabinet. So all the ministers are going to be appointed by the president. They will be solely responsible to the president. We don't know how many ministers there are going to be or how many vice presidents. The numbers of these uh, positions, as well as what their exact authority will be, is going to be determined by the will of the president himself. So the parliament is losing its control over the government. And also the president can dissolve the parliament and take the country to elections. This is another important distinction. Another important distinction is the grip over the majority in the parliament. Basically, the president can be right now also the leader of a party. This means that he will be the chairman of the AKP once again. So through the party, the president will also be able to control the parliament. So in distinction, for example, from the American system, in the sense, well, the party system in America is, of course, appropriate to a federal regime. Now, this is a unitary administrative structure we're talking about. The party is controlled through and through by the leader of the party. This is how the party system is set up by the coup regime itself. This doesn't change, actually, which means that all the candidates for parliamentary position, all the candidates for municipalities, 
as a matter of fact, all of the candidates of the party, as well as all uh, party organizations, are controlled directly by the leader of the party. And that's not just for the AKP. This is how the uh, party system works according to the law promulgated by the Kuh regime. So, since presidential elections and parliamentary elections are going to take place at the same time, on the same day, in other words, all of the members of the parliament will change with the president, it's going to be very likely that the president and the majority party will be from the same party. This is also giving the president extraordinary authority over the parliament. So this presidential system doesn't resemble the American presidential system, which is characterized by division of powers and checks and balances. It looks much more like an African presidential system. It doesn't even look like Latin American presidential systems, which have been, as you would know, historically also quite authoritarian and prone to instability, coups, and so on and so forth. This is the parliamentary side of it. If you look at the judiciary, the president gets new powers over appointment of high levels, judges as well as prosecutors, directly as well as indirectly. Some of the judges to the highest positions, he will be able to appoint them by himself, unilaterally. And some of them, of course, he will be able to control some of the appointments through its control over the party and over the parliament. Also, the president will have and does have, as we speak, extraordinary powers in appointing high-level officials to positions of the so-called autonomous institutions. These institutions, which have been hallmarks of neoliberal governance, central bank, you know, and similar institutions which regulate capital markets, for example, or regulating the media, for example, radio and television, and so on and so forth, they all will be also under the president's control. In other words, all the state apparatus will be controlled by the president. In Aristotle's words, it's called rule by decree. The Turkish referendum that took place on April 16, it happened under the state of emergency imposed after the um, attempted coup of July 2016 last year. Describe to us what this state of emergency entails and how it affected the voting. In a nutshell, the emergency regime means that the government, any action of the government, is immune from judicial review. For example, the government that are a threat to the regime and fires you from your job and then prohibits you from going abroad. You cannot apply to any court about this. There is no legal procedure that allows you to challenge this decision by the government. They established a commission just to make sure that people's applications do not go to the European Court of Human Rights because the statute of the court basically requires that all applicants go through domestic legal procedures first. It's not a legal court. It's an administrative commission which has the sort of illusion of legal procedure. But basically, 
the main function of this commission is to put off the applications to the European Court of Human Rights as much as possible. Except from this, even the applications to uh, the Constitutional Court, which is the equivalent of the Supreme Court in the States, have been denied by Constitutional Court. Even the Constitutional Court said that it does not have any authority to review these extraordinary emergency orders. In other words, the Constitutional Court admitted that this emergency order is basically unconstitutional. And what it means is there have been crackdown on the opposition. Yes, exactly. And then basically challenging these practices in a legal way is completely shut off. This is basically what the Constitutional Court is saying. If the Constitutional Court says, I don't have any jurisdiction over emergency orders promulgated by the government, it is basically admitting that this is a government outside of the Constitution. So de facto, that means that the Constitution does not exist or is not valid anymore. These were the conditions under which the country went into these elections. So what were the practical consequences? Well, first of all, the opposition parties, and not just the political parties, but also NGOs, activists in the opposition, were not allowed to campaign freely, which is admitted by all international monitors in these elections. Basically, the no campaign was attacked in the streets. Some people got detained. Some people got arrested. The media was closed for the no campaign. Most of the TV stations in the opposition are closed down anyway. You know, the plight of journalists in Turkey. Turkey has one of the highest numbers of journalists sitting in prison. So under these circumstances, basically, the no campaign had no opportunity to reach out to the public and also come up with a strategy after the referendum. We should also mention that both leaders of the third biggest opposition party in the parliament, the HDP, are sitting in prison. Also other members of this party. This is the People's Democratic Party, the leftist People's Democratic Party that you're referring yes, to. Yes, the HDP, yes, the People's Democratic Party is an alliance between the socialist left as well as feminist, anarchists, LGBT activists, and environmentalists. Yes, and the Kurdish liberation movement. The chairs of this party have been imprisoned, as well as some members of the parliament have been imprisoned. And also, in the Kurdish region of the country, there has been a major counterinsurgency war being raised against not only the PKK and the PKK militants, but also against the larger Kurdish public who are being punished for supporting the HDP in the last few elections. And it's a collective punishment. Yes, it is a collective punishment. We know this because we know how, for example, when we talk about places like Diyarbakir, the historical Sur district, basically inside the ancient Diyarbakir castle, has been raised to the ground completely. People who've been living there have lost their homes, have been driven out. Same goes for Nusaib in Jizre. You know, we can list these places. Basically, if you look at the pictures 
from these places. They pretty much look like places raised by the Syrian civil war. In also, you know, we have to factor in that in these parts of the country, which have been subjected to a counterinsurgency urban warfare, we cannot talk about fair and free elections. It was also apparently these ballot boxes which raised most of the suspicions about these elections. Critics of the Turkish government say that this referendum of April 16 was neither free nor fair. And the Supreme Election board members voted against appeals from the two main opposition parties. One of them you mentioned, the People's Democratic Party, HDP. The other one, the Republican People's Party, uh, CHP. Both of them had lodged formal complaints calling for the annulment of the results, citing a last-minute decision to accept possibly hundreds of thousands of unstamped ballots without the official seals. This is severe. I mean, given the victory margins that AKP had in this referendum, this could have tipped the election results in favor of the opposition. Oh, yes, definitely. We're talking about 1.5 million unstamped ballots here. And most importantly, this decision by the electoral board came around, I believe, 4.30 p.m. or something. So it was right about when the ballot boxes were about to close down. And that's what makes it very, very suspicious. I mean, you don't change the rules of the game in the middle of an election, not even in the middle when you get close to the closing of the ballot boxes. Basically, this is, in fact, something that makes this whole decision very, very suspicious. Also, the fact that the electoral board itself has been purged by Erdogan previously in the last few months. A lot of the judges, along with you know prosecutors, policemen, all sorts of high-ranking officials, have lost their jobs, have been purged by emergency decrees, and are basically on the risk of being prosecuted by the regime as Gulenists, as terrorists, or as coup plotters, or whatnot. So basically, under these circumstances, it's not rational to expect these high-ranking judges to be objective and to basically come to a decision which would go against the will of the president. And also, the decisions of this board cannot be brought to court. That's another important point. So think about, for example, the Bush versus Gore debate. There is no recount. If the board says no recount, it's no recount. Most importantly, I think, is the position of the Republican People's Party, the leader of which basically was very shy in his opposition to this decision, if I may say. This is the CHP, and they they actually filed an appeal, but you're saying they were bashful about it. Yes. I mean, they cannot be supportive of this decision, or uh, they cannot take it as it is without voicing any opposition, Because, obviously, their electorate and their activists, rank and file, would basically rebel against the leadership. But if you look at the leadership of the Republican People's Party, what they're trying to do is basically demobilize their activists, demobilize their rank and file, and basically try to get people off the street, off the protests, by basically telling them that in the next elections, 2019, 
they will have a chance for uh, the presidency and they, they will go from home to home. They will work for these elections and they will win the elections. And this is basically completely just a tactic to demobilize their constituency. And also a vote was taken in Strasbourg, the Council of Europe, basically, about a report on Turkey's human rights issues. Here, the Republican People's Party, together with the incumbent AKP and the ultra-nationalist MHP, voted no for this report in the council, which also shows us that practically they already started cooperating with the AKP. So they condemn this report by the uh, Europe's Council. This just happened earlier this week. It looks like the governing AKP, Justice and Development Party, had to rely on parliamentary votes from the far-right MHP to lead the country to a referendum. Can you talk about that? And also, the margin of victory for the yes vote in this referendum, it was slim, and the percentage of yes voters, it was only 51.3%, and this was much lower than the two parties' combined share of the votes, which was 62% in the last general election in November 2015. That was only five months ago. What does that tell us in terms of the base for these two parties? Let's start with the MHP. Over the last two years, there has been a growing discontent with MHP leadership under Devlet Bahçeli. Actually, the inner party opposition came very close to force the party for another convention and basically vote the incumbent leadership out. But the court system under Erdogan's orders basically prevented this convention. So enabling Devlet Bahçeli to stay in powers in the party. And it turns out that this tactic actually didn't work for elections. In other words, the rank and file of MHP are not agreeing with its leadership. This is a far-right party, yes, to be clear. This is a far-right party. When we talk about the MHP, we should talk about its roots, basically, in the 70s. So MHP was basically a smaller party in its roots, and then it was taken over by Colonel Turkesh, who was basically one of the leading figures in the coup of May 1960. And it was a sort of ultra-nationalist party from the get-go. Turkish, sort of the founding figure of ultra-right, comes from Cyprus. So obviously very much involved in the counterinsurgency movement in Cyprus, the Turkish revenge platoon. And also throughout the 70s, they have been working with elements of the intelligence, secret police, what's in Turkey called Guerilla, basically, counter-insurgency institutions. So they have been acting as the paramilitary force for the deep state, especially against trade unions, socialists, students' movements, and so on and so forth. They've been engaging in armed attacks against the left. After the coup, they've been closed down. Once they reopened, they again functioned as a paramilitary force for the state. Of course, during the 80s and 90s, since communism was now over as a threat, uh, the main point was became the Kurdish issue. And throughout the 90s, after the founding figure Turkish passed away, the party was taken over by Devlet Bahçeli, the present leader right now. 
And Devlet Bahçeli in the 90s was highly praised by mainstream media, by liberals, by center-left and by center-right, as a leader which is basically holding the leash of its rank and file, which meant basically instead of joining the mafia, instead of hunting leftists with guns and stuff, these people would now engage in sort of, you know, politics, civilian politics. So it was in this sense a reformed MHP, or that's what we have been told by uh, mainstream media. But they still were engaging in street mobilization, especially in funerals of soldiers coming from the Kurdish region. So apart from the Kurdish question, right now the MHP has basically no rationale to exist. That's their only point. They don't have any social, any economic program. They don't really have a program for policy. Their basically hallmark is the Kurdish issue and Turkish nationalism. And in this sense, of course, this is important, I think, to understand why uh, Devlet Bahçeli would go down that road, meaning into an alliance with Erdogan. I think his main goal is basically not to win the elections, but win power over the state apparatus by allying himself with Erdogan. Basically, in return for his alliance with Erdogan, he will get his men appointed to higher echelons of the state bureaucracy. So, I mean, we cannot look at MHP as an ordinary electoral party. It's much more a extended state apparatus. And it is basically changing its shape and form according to the needs of the deep state and how it wants to reach out to society and wants to create a social base for its policies. And it's in this sense, I think it's obvious that the MHP leadership right now is losing its base. However, the opposition leaders within MHP, Meral Akşener, is also, now she's being praised by center-left and center-right as a new Devlet Bahçeli, basically a more civilized face for MHP. Uh, this is important because the opposition figure within the MHP, Meral Akşener, is being presented as a more sort of acceptable figure, much more, if you look at her conferences, for example, or talks, she's talking about rule of law, she's talking about the constitution, human rights, and stuff like that. So basically, she's giving an image of a transformation within MHP from a more militaristic to a less militaristic and a more low-bound party. The problem is that uh, this figure also, Meral Akşener, that is, she also served as a minister of the interior in the 1990s, when the deep state was getting involved in all sorts of illegal crimes within Turkey, killing businessmen, getting involved in mafia networks, and launching a huge warfare, both psychologically and physical warfare, against the Kurds and the population at large. So she's not a very democratic figure, but at this point, she looks like she can crack this kind of coalition between the MHP and the AKP. We need to talk about the street protests, but before we do that, as a segue to that question, major cosmopolitan cities such as Istanbul, Ankara, Izmir, and Antalya voted no to the um, proposed changes in the Constitution. 
In Southeast Turkey also, most Kurdish voters voted no. What do these results tell us in terms of base of support for ruling AKP party and also vice versa, what does it say about people who were opposing the uh, referendum, in particular the Republican Party, CHP, the Centrist Party and the leftist People's Democratic Party, HDP? First of all, I think it's very important because the main, the backbone of the AKP as well as Erdoganism as the regime is the informal working class in urban cities. I think sociologically speaking, the most important development in Turkey over the last half a century is urbanization. Turkey is now a predominantly urban country and this will have political consequences, of course. And I think the first consequence was the rise of Islamism and then the transformation of Islamism into a neoliberal Islamism. The transformation of AKP, you know, the transmutation of the welfare party of the 80s into the AKP of the 2000s. And this is the most important dynamic. This is an early sign of a process showing us that the AKP is losing the urban electorate. We have to see how this is going to develop. It does not mean, however, that the opposition parties can capitulate on that. In other words, that people are not endorsing AKP's constitutional proposition does not mean that they are going to vote for CHP or for HDP. There is no one-to-one relationship there. No, not at all. Because the referendum was about the constitutional structure, whether it's going to be a one-man show or whether uh, there's going to be limits and checks on the executive power. But elections are basically about who's going to rule, which is another question. Because then the electorate will be looking at, you know, what kind of coalitions are possible. We saw this already with June 7 elections two years ago when the electorate didn't give the AKP the mandate to form a single-party government. In other words, the AKP didn't get the majority in the parliament. And then for three months, Erdogan's main strategy was basically to show the people that if, in the absence of a single-party government by the AKP, there would be no government in Turkey, which was very scary for the people for several reasons that the fear that this would trigger an economic crisis, it would trigger a security crisis, overall instability. So people, uh, I think, not only when they're making their choices about elections, they're not only thinking about their ideal choices, but also about uh, what kind of government can emerge from the choices that they make. And up to this point, at least, the CHP, for example, doesn't look like a Uh, alternative to AKP anyway, because in order to be an alternative, the party has to provide an alternative to the Syria policy, to Iraq policy, to Kurdish policy, to relations with the West, economic policy. None of this is coming from the CHP, basically. And that's the centrist party, used to be... Yes, that's the center-left. I mean, um, I would rather say that it has social democratic members or social democratic factions within it. Yes, it is part of the Socialist International. It uh, has defined itself to the left of center, 
since 70s, since late 1960s, which was actually a response to the emergence of the Turkish Workers' Party. So when the workers' movement was on the rise and the workers' union leaders founded a workers' party, which even entered the parliament back in the late 60s, that was the Republican People's Party's attempt to capitulate on this and to basically win these new urban voters to the Republicans' People's Party. But the Republicans' People's Party is the founding Kemalist organization of the Republic. And it feels very much as the real... Um, protector of that established... Owner, I would say. Not just protector, but owner of uh, the state. What I said for uh, the MHP also goes for the CHP in a sense, in the sense that when they do their political calculations, it's not just the electorate that they're looking to. It's also their people in the judiciary, their connections in the ministries, their connections in the military especially. So, for example, I think most of their policies towards the Kurdish question, as well as, for example, like the vote in the Council of Europe, or how they endorsed, for example, AKP's bombing in Sinjar two days ago, this all shows us that when they're taking these positions, they're coordinating with this deep state. It's the calculus of power and having access to the state apparatus. The leader of the CHP is a retired bureaucrat, high-ranking bureaucrat. And if you look at the people that they work with, for example, they are mostly also coming from these high-ranking bureaucrats or from businessmen who are connected to larger business circles. So basically, the CHP, I think, first and foremost, its connections in the state, secondly, capital and capital factions, especially Istanbul capital, like Tusiat, for example, is very important. International markets, international capital, I think it was also a factor, basically, when the CHP realized that the international markets actually endorsed this yes vote because it's going to bring stability no vote would bring instability. Uh, that was the uh, logic of, you know, international markets. Basically, CHP is also looking to that. And, of course, foreign policy. And they're looking what the U.S. is saying, what the Russians are saying. They're positioning themselves, I think, with the state bureaucracy, with the consensus in the state bureaucracy. And since the state bureaucracy is controlled by Erdogan, I think, at the end of the day, CHP is going to be controlled by Erdogan. You mentioned informal working class as one of the core elements of base of support for uh, the ruling justice and development party, AKP. Who else is there when you want to describe the base of support? Of course, informal urban poor is the major social dynamic. And two political actors have been benefiting from that. One, the AKP. Second, the Kurdish movement. Also, the base of the Kurdish movement, the HDP, is also consists mostly of informal uh, workers. These are mainly Kurds that have been either uprooted, yes, yes, uprooted internally, and now they're living in major urban centers such as Istanbul and Ankara and so forth. Exactly. I mean, one of the beneficiaries of the civil war with the Kurds, as well as actually the Syrian civil war, has been uh, the capital since all these wars are injecting new 
and cheaper labor force into the labor market and bringing down wages without necessarily a frontal attack against unions and such. So these informal workers are the major social dynamic. But if you look at, and this is the tricky part, how social control is being established over these informal workers, then we get to another social segment, which is the people who own medium or small businesses, shopkeepers, shop owners, but at the same time, people who live in the same neighborhoods or in close neighborhoods to these informal workers, but actually are landowners or shop owners. In other words, they have economic control over uh, the informal working force. These are usually the people who migrated to Istanbul or to Izmir or Ankara in the 60s and 70s or maybe 80s. And then they have been granted and they settled in public land belonging to the treasury. And they have been granted deeds of these lands by uh, municipalities in return for their votes. So by becoming landlords and then by becoming landlords, they benefited handsomely from the urbanization in uh, the 90s, from this influx of cheap labor into big cities since urban rents went up. When rents went up, you know, these social segments became wealthier and they, of course, you know, started supporting heavily the party which basically spearheaded this rent creation and rent distribution, which was the AKP. Shouldn't forget that Erdogan is, used to be the mayor of Istanbul. Most of the leadership of this party comes from municipalities, which they won in 1994. So if you want to understand the management model of the AKP, I think we should go back to this sort of distribution of urban land, this clientelistic distribution of urban land. And together with that, of course, the laws that regulate planning and zoning laws that would have to allow these people to do more construction on the smaller plots of land. Adding units. Yes, of course. For example, think in relation to Gezi protests, for example, of 2013. This was exactly what Gezi was against, Gezi protests were against. And this is exactly why Erdogan's base got even more consolidated with Gezi protests because the Gezi protest was actually a protest against the interest of Erdogan's social base who benefited handsomely from urban transformation. And new zoning regulations and more urban construction which actually needs lower wages and construction workers. These are the masses who have been uprooted from the rural areas into the cities. I call them the new Muslim Victorians. You know, they're like the 21st century version of this up-and-coming English gentry. I mean, it had almost the same outlook. You know, they were basically criticizing the aristocracy with debauchery, how they're alienated from Christian values. They don't, they're not hard workers. They didn't earn anything by themselves. They've been all given their wealth and status by uh, the state. This is exactly the kind of criticism that these liberal Islamists were voicing against Kemalists. It kind of reminds you of a process of capital accumulation in England at the time, what Karl Marx actually points out in his works. Exactly. 
it was basically Islamism in that sense was a moral justification of capital accumulation and social mobility and uh, the justification of uh, this fight for uh, political power, basically. And why was it moral? Because this moral appeal was exactly the kind of control mechanism of this class over informal workers. And this is basically typical of all kinds of inter-bourgeois conflict. The underdog faction is basically calling on the masses to help them in their struggle uh, to power. Now, the problem is, of course, what's going to happen with these people when the RKP establishes its single-party regime or a dictatorship and uh, whether this is going to be sustainable or not. Economically, it's not sustainable. Socially, it's not sustainable. And politically, I don't think it's sustainable. So basically, these, I would say, small and medium-sized shop owners and business owners are the backbone of AKP's constituency, but also, most importantly, big capital. And this is the Anatolian bourgeoisie. Anatolian bourgeoisie, but also part of the Istanbul bourgeoisie. The Istanbul bourgeoisie would always complain about uh, AKP's authoritarianism, pretty much like the CHP. But at the end of the day, I think they would also look at stability. They're going to look at their profit rates. They're going to look at their investments. And of course, they are bothered by the fact that there is increasing instability. There's also increasing closing down of basically investment horizons. You cannot foresee what's going to happen in two years, three years from now. So there's an increasing element of uncertainty. Um, yes. But there is no other way. And the whole concept of uncertainty is a very neoliberal concept. I mean, the AKP has been uh, very proud of being an efficient risk manager. They always said that, you know, without risk, there will be no gain. So this is neoliberal politics. There's actually an important rationale for the big bourgeoisie to support AKP is basically the development strategy of Turkey. The most important problem of uh, the Turkish economy is the so-called middle income problem, which means that given its structure right now, the Turkish economy will not be able to go beyond a certain threshold of GDP per capita in this developmental strategy, because basically it doesn't produce as much value-added goods as it should to support its export-oriented growth. Its main competitive advantage, in other words, in the world economy, is cheap labor. And therein lies the problem. If you want to produce more value-added goods, then you have to invest in technology, in education, and that has not been done by the AKP. So the AKP, rather than doing that, is all about creating rents. And what is this rent? Basically, the selling of Russian gas to Europe. So becoming an energy hub. And of course, this is a very lucrative business. And I think it's the only solution for the Turkish bourgeoisie to sustain its level of profitability. And in that sense, I think the AKP government favors big capital. Potentially, they could be benefiting from the Iranian natural gas going through Turkey to Europe, too. Definitely. Definitely. That's and even a bigger chunk of market. Exactly. But the problem is, of course, all these deals with Russia and Iran have to be endorsed by Europe, especially by Germany. In other words, Erdogan leadership has to convince Germany 
before it will take such a role in the world economy. But think about, for example, Tuprash, which is the biggest company in Turkey by far. And it has been privatized and it has been sold to the Koç company, to the Koç family, which is the biggest capital group in Turkey. So the Koç family benefited handsomely from AKP's rule. I don't think they have much reason to oppose it. But also AKP created its own big bourgeoisie, like, for example, Çalık Holding. And it's basically also trying to engage in all sorts of primitive capital accumulation tactics and strategies to create its loyal big bourgeoisie of its own. But the relationship between these different groups, informal workers, small and medium-sized business owners, and the big bourgeoisie is going to be increasingly unsustainable politically. Uh, we have to factor in the fact that the AKP never actually encountered a big economic crisis. And this is the iron law of Turkish politics. Governments go with economic crisis. It's never failed. Let's talk about the international arena. You mentioned how the global capital markets responded positively to the referendum. What was the reaction of the U.S. government? And in general, how would you characterize the U.S.-Turkey relations? Do you see a change with the new administration in Washington? That's an interesting question because it's really tough to predict U.S. foreign policy right now because I think U.S. foreign policy is a bargaining chip for the Trump administration to consolidate its leadership in the Congress. And we can see that in the vote fast that they made uh, with regard to Russia. Uh, the Trump administration is using the Russian policy to uh, build a majority in the Congress among uh, Republicans, reaching out to uh, people like McCain, for example, to the Republican establishment, because Trump's initial Russian policy went against all sorts of established Western interests in Washington, D.C. So basically, he's after the defeat of his healthcare bill, basically, this is an important area in which he can actually assert leadership, which he has to. So in this sense, we know from the press that Mr. Flynn met with the Erdogan administration, apparently with Erdogan's Minister of Foreign Affairs, as well as the Ministry of Energy, who happens to be Erdogan's son-in-law. And the former CIA director also said that in these talks prior to U.S. elections, the issue of uh, Fethullah Gulen came up. And the former CIA chief was basically emphasizing the fact that apparently warned them about that these negotiations might be uh, illegal. Because whether Fethullah Gulen can stay in the country or not is actually under uh, the jurisdiction of the courts and not a decision by the administration to be made. Briefly, just tell us what the significance of Mr. Gulen is and who's, uh, what his background is. Fethullah Gulen is basically a cleric who is sitting at the top of an intricate network of schools, hospitals, universities, banks, companies, which all come together in some sort of a religious order. But the religious order itself is basically engaged in all sorts of economic, social and political activities. The Gulen community was a founding member of the AKP's first coalition in 2002. They supported the AKP for almost a decade 
They acted as its appendix in the state bureaucracy, and then they had a big fallout in 2013 over basically who's going to have control over the state apparatus. And they got basically purged by the Erdogan government. And now they're trying to extradite him. There are several things, of course, we can think about in these negotiations. One is the Gulen file. And of course, what kind of files Gulen has about Erdogan. But that's not the only file. Uh, Riza Sarraf, who was um, very important in the Erdogan's dealings with Iran and um, basically benefiting handsomely from this Iran's circumvention of American embargo. There's also a case in Tehran against these illegal tradings because uh, Iran wants to know where all that money went. Just to be clear, at the heart of this corruption scandal was the issue of exporting gold to Iran in order to get around the U.S. and European sanctions on Iran. And the amount of transactions the general manager of the largest state-owned bank had undertaken was an alleged $140 billion between 2009 and 2012. And Reza Sarraf is, if I'm not mistaken, he's on trial in New York now. Yes, exactly. Well, we don't know what's going to happen because the prosecutor of Manhattan, as you know, Pete Barara, had to step down on Mr. Trump's orders. We also know that the deputy uh, director of Halk Bankası, which is a publicly owned bank in Turkey, was also detained in the last month, in the previous month. So this is also interesting because we know that Halk Bankası, or the name of Halk Bankası, its brand, was implicated in news about ISIS oil trade. Yes. As well as oil trade with the Barzani regime in Erbil, circumventing again the Iraqi constitution and the regime in Baghdad. So this Uh, is quite an intricate scandal. I mean, basically it involves the autonomous regional Kurdish government, uh, Barzani's group, and Iranians, Iranian regime on one side. And this Reza Sarraf was an Iranian yes. citizen, but he was dealing with this state-owned bank in Turkey. And it involves, presumably, people who are within Mr. Erdogan's family. Yes, and also we know that when you look at the Turkish budget, uh, there is an enormous amount of cash in the budget and no one knows where it comes from. And this has been the case for several years now. So the amount of money that is coming into Turkey is so big and it's unregulated, which is basically legitimately leading us to suspicions about money laundering as well. So basically all these files are going to be implicated in the negotiations between Washington and Ankara. Since we don't know exactly the extent of these files and the extent of these negotiations, we cannot for sure say how these relationships evolve. But obviously... The stepping down of Mr. Flint had a negative effect. It was a setback for Erdogan. Mr. Erdogan. Yes. And also, if we look at the military strategy, their security strategy, we can still say that they are not quite aligned with U.S. foreign policy or with U.S. security policy in the region. Uh, we see it uh, with, for example, over Egypt. We see it over, especially, you know, U.S. policy towards Kurds. We see it in their Cyprus policy. So on April 25th, the Turkish military planes bombed Kurdish fighters in Iraq's Sinjar region and northeast Syria, 
thereby killing dozens in a widening campaign against groups which they say they have ties to PKK, Kurdistan Workers' Party, which is in a military conflict with the Turkish state. The Turkish military targets included YPG, a Kurdish militia that has played an important role in American-backed operation in Syria against the uh, Daesh, the Islamic State, ISIS. The United States and Turkey, as you said, have been sharply at odds over this YPG Kurdish militia. The U.S. military officials regard this group as an essential partner, and Turkish government is saying that YPG is closely linked to PKK and thereby is a terrorist group. Can you talk about this attack and the timing of it just a week after this plebiscite and this referendum? I think it has more to do with domestic politics. So basically, um, I already talked about uh, the CHP's recent moves, both with regard to Europe and with regard to these policies. Very interestingly, the deputy chairman of the CHP made an announcement basically saying that the CHP supports this attack by the AKP and even finds it actually quite late. So they are not only supporting AKP's attack, they're uh, saying it's been already too late. Why didn't you do, do it earlier? Yeah. Yes, exactly. So, and a deputy chair who makes this announcement happened to be the Turkish consul in Mosul who have been uh, detained, who have been arrested by ISIS and held as a ransom for a few months before being handed over to Turkish authorities. So it's interesting that Turkish consul in Mosul, just prior to the ISIS invasion, is now the deputy chair of CHP. And then basically supporting AKP's military maneuvers in the region. As I see it, I think these bombings are instruments for the AKP to consolidate uh, its leadership. So pretty much like the Trump administration, I think, when uh, an administration, it goes for any administration, when an administration cannot consolidate its leadership at home, uh, then you turn to overseas, either in military action or starts a international crisis, so that you can assert your leadership and basically say to the opposition, this is not the time for opposition. We have to get together to so basically create this rally around the flag effect. That's, I think, one major explanation of uh, this offensive. Basically, look, the uh, precondition of uh, the current power block, the MHB, AKP, and also now we can also add, I think, as His Majesty's loyal opposition, the CHP, is dependent on Iraq and Syria policy. Uh, the only interest that all these political factions have is basically to stop PKK gaining a stronghold in Syria, as well as becoming influential in Iraq. So that's the only thing that keeps all of these warring factions together politically. That's probably what they have in common also with all these regimes in the region too. The Iraqi, the Iranian, the Syrian exactly. regime. Exactly, exactly. So I suspect that as long as the crisis lingers in Iraq and in Syria, as long as there's uncertainty, as long as there's no political settlement in Syria and in Iraq, this regime will continue in Turkey. And the day it's settled, I think this whole regime will come down. That's quite because, a prediction. <laughs> yes. 
You don't mean immediately, but you mean gradually it would be losing its yeah, legitimacy. Because there is no political objective of this coalition. We call it the Milli Mutabakat, national consensus government. The consensus is based on uh, the anti-PKK interest. Once that is settled, once there is nothing left for Turkey to do in Syria and Iraq, then uh, I think there will be no political rationale for this coalition. So let's look at, for example, what might be the political goal of this military action, since every military action has to have a political objective. Aerial bombing of this area will kill certain amount of PKK members and so on and so forth, but it will not wipe out PKK from this region. Uh, you need ground troops to be able to do that, and ground troops are not in sight. The street yes. protests that followed the uh, referendum, what does that tell us? How can left and democratic forces in Turkey create a viable alternative against the ruling bloc? First of all, I think labor rights is the most important issue. So I think it's very important to break the hegemony of uh, CHP over opposition forces in Turkey. I think new venues have to be experimented and these political venues have to specifically prioritize labor rights. I think the only way to break this increasing polarization process within Turkey and the consolidation of these you know, secularist Islamist identities and so on and so forth is basically to form a coalition based on labor rights. That's mo- the most important thing. Secondly, also foreign policy. As I said, the only alternative to this regime is possible through an alternative foreign policy which also means, of course, an alternative Kurdish policy. Without these labor rights and Kurdish foreign policy, I think it's impossible to build an alternative to this regime. Even if this regime implodes within itself, the opposition might not actually come to power as long as it doesn't offer an alternative. Sinan Berdal is Visiting Assistant Professor at the School of International Relations and the Middle East Studies Program at the University of Southern California. He is the author of The Holy Roman Empire and the Ottomans, From Global Imperial Power to Absolutist States. He spoke with Shahram Agamir. For a status, I am Malihe Razazan. Thank you for listening.